Hi everybody, and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us, and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Never look sideways to compare, only for inspiration. And as you can probably tell, I'm a deep thinker and I really thought about that and thought, right, what does that mean? What does he mean? And then what does that mean to me? What it means to me is if I'm looking, if I am looking sideways to compare, I'm in the wrong environment. I'm not being tested. I'm at a level where I'm, I'm, I'm here. I want to be in an environment where I'm aspiring to get to. To, to, to the next level. So if I'm looking sideways for inspiration, it means I'm surrounding myself with elite people. Before we introduce today's guest, we would like to thank everybody for tuning in to the 50th episode of the Goldust podcast. We had some great feedback, which is always nice to hear. For any new listeners that did tune in, we would like to point you in the direction of our two best-selling books, Goldust how to become a more effective coach quickly, and The Lone Wolf, a story about assumptions, authenticity, and action. Both are available on Amazon. Now for today's episode, we're excited to welcome Harry Watling, head coach at Hartford Athletic FC, onto the Goldust podcast. Harry has previously worked at Chelsea, Millwall, and West Ham United, before taking his first role in senior men's football at Hartford in the second tier of the American system at the age of just 31. He's one of the most highly regarded young coaches around and he shares with us his journey so far, what he's learning in his first senior role and what he believes are important qualities when dealing with people. Harry, welcome and thank you for coming on to the Golders podcast today. Now, first of all, I just wanted to say, obviously, you know, I've got great respect for both of you and what you've, you know, what you've done with the podcast and the book. And it's an absolute pleasure to come on. Your guests, you know, that I've listened to have been have been brilliant. So really humbled to be invited on. I just wanted to say thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Well, as you know, then the first question is the same one that we always start with. To us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people for the greater good. What does gold dust mean to you? I think I've really, you know, really tried to think about it. I think it's a value and I think it's an impact of, of, of someone or something. And I think you feel it and I think you can sometimes see it. And I, and I think there's times where if, if that's absent, you, you really notice it. And, and an example I can give you is if you're in a situation, you know, you're in an environment and, you know, a, a certain person is absent. And when they come back, you really notice it, you really feel it. It might be something they say, it might be how they are, it might be how they are with people, but you, you notice you, you notice it and, and their ways. And, you know, I think what I would say about the great people that I've come across and that I've worked with, they always seem to say the right thing at the right time. And I think that's, I think that's the gold dust part. What a great answer. Now, you're good friends with Mick Beale, first team coach at Glasgow Rangers. 
share with us how that all started, first and foremost, and then as a consequence of that, Ari, what coaching opportunities have presented themselves since then? Well, I think it went, it went from Michael to Mike to Mickey to Mick. <laughs> um, so it, Mick was my coach. He was actually my coach. He, he, he ran, um, we're, from, we're from two council estates that are literally next to each other. So Mickey played with Scott Parker um, in a youth team at Charlton. Scott's house backed onto my house. I'm from the Downham estate. Mickey's from the Chimbrook estate um, in South East London. Um, Mick started a, a, a soccer school, which was um, very similar to futsal. It had a Brazilian element, football disallowed. And it was just, it was honestly, it was at the top of my road. And um, I went along and the first thing that Mick always used to say to me when I used to get on the ball was relax. Just relax, H, just relax. Made me feel really, you know, made me feel really empowered when I got the football at my feet. And from there, um, going sort of 14, 15 years of age, um, we had a really good conversation about potentially, you know, me chipping in and helping him as a, as you know, just balls, bibs and cones, picking the balls up for him, bringing them in if he needed any, you know, any help in any sessions. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I loved working with the little ones. I loved, you know, I loved seeing a smile on their face. For me, that's, you know, that's how I fell in love with the game. I used to go asleep with the football, you know, loved the game as a kid, still love the game now, but really sort of fell in love with the, I suppose, the teaching aspect to the game and, and making that, you know, making that, that, that part of it enjoyable. Um, and then sort of fast forwarding slightly, Mick got a full-time job at Chelsea and ended up giving me his soccer schools. And his soccer schools was, you know, one night on a, on a Wednesday in a, in a local community hall and a couple of after-school clubs. Um, and I just ran with it, just ran with it. I was like, right, what am I going to do? And, it, you know, made it, made it my baby. And, and after that, there was an opportunity to go and work with him at Chelsea in the academy. And we could, you know, we'll go into that a little bit later, but I suppose that opportunity... Um, after sort of doing, you know, doing a week of work experience with Mick as a 15-year-old, going into the development centres, going into, the, you know, going into the academy, that was that was a real ambition of mine. And to achieve that, you know, at, at 19, it was a really proud moment. And then since then, you know, we've we've just we've been really close, really close. And I suppose he's gone from the coach to my boss, to my friend, to one of my best friends. And he was the best man at my wedding. He was the best man at my wedding. Um, I remember when I asked him to be my best man, he spoke for about an hour and 15 minutes about Sao Paulo <laughs> before, before I could ask him the question. And I, I wasn't listening to anything he was talking about for an hour. And uh, I remember asking him and, you know, I was, de I was delighted to have him there because he's, he's, he's been a real massive part of my, of, of my coming up in this world. He's been like a big brother to me, really. In that period, were there any defining moments in your life when you thought or even knew that you wanted coaching to be your profession? Yeah, if I'm being completely honest, um, I was turning left when I should have been turning right, probably from the age of 12 to 15. Um, and, and Mick was a big part in, in sort of helping me, you know, change the direction of where I was going. And you know, and, and showing me the right way to, to behave, the right way to, to sort of lead my life. Um, my mum made me join a, a boxing gym um, and that really humbled me and that taught me, you know, how to be a, a proper person. 
I think there were two real big defining moments in my coaching journey so far. The first one was my work experience. So as you know, in certain schools in the UK, you get to leave for a week in, in year 10 and go and go and do something that you want to do. And I spent, I spent a week with Mick and you know, I went to the, to, the, to the local Chelsea Development Centre where he had Tammy Abraham, Ovia Ajaria, players like that at six, seven years old. And I just couldn't believe the standard, could not believe how good these, these young players were. And that really inspired me. And, and the next big, the big penny drop moment for me was actually 10 years later when I went on my A licence. Um, went on my A licence, really excited. I think I was 25, 26. And I, you know, I, met, I met another, what I would call a, a mentor, someone that inspired me, someone called Dick Bate. And that was, that was another key, key part of, you know, when I really thought to myself, you know, I could be good at this. I could, I could be good at this. I can really make a difference, I think. Um, and they were, the two, they were the two key moments for me. So when you, you speak quite fondly, both of Mick and obviously an experience with Dick Bert, who is infamous, uh, is world, worldly renowned for his ability to, to provide technical information in a, in a collective as a team. But for you, Harry, what, what attributes of both Mick and Dick, and there may be other people in your life, incidentally, that have also helped to shape your coaching career or help to provide some uh, some wisdom what is it about those people that that makes them unique i think i think the first thing i would say is they are exactly what you've just said they are unique because they are there themselves so michael bill and dick bait are completely different ends of the spectrum in terms of what they are what you know how they sound what they teach, what they potentially stand for in terms of, you know, philosophy perspective. And then, then there's, there's, there's many others. But I think the best people I've worked with, you know, speak Michael Bill, Dick Bate, Steve Salis, another guy that I've got a lot of respect for, Liam Manning, Harry Redknapp, someone I speak to a lot and, and ask for advice. They are, they are the best version of themselves and they are unique as people. And I think you know, if we talk about Dick Bate for a minute, I think... The king of language, king of language, a wizard, a wizard with words. Um, I, I used to, I used to watch the kids get out of their cars when I would do sessions, and they would run to the session, and they'd run to the session because I was excited. When I was at St George's and I was doing my A license, when we finished breakfast, I could not wait to get down to the astroturf to watch or participate in one of Dick Bates' sessions. I think, I don't think I've ever seen anybody dominate a room in a positive way like Dick. I don't think I've ever heard anybody completely, completely own a room and, and own a, you know, a group of people like he did. I think anyone that's ever come across Dick will smile when I say this, but the way he would glide across the pitch was like he was hovering off the ground and he would tell you a story and you'd be, you'd be there, you're with him, you're with him. He could be talking about tanks, he could be talking about geese, he could be talking about anything, and you're with him. And the, and the, the biggest compliment I can give, give to Dick was he, he, he actually made me fall in love with the game again. He would, he would make you feel really special. He, would, you know, he, he, was, he was an amazing person, and I took, I took so many things from him. I think 
He would say lots of things in groups of three, which again, you know, words that work was something that Dick used to say to me a lot. Harry, use words that work, things that stick in the brain, because in four hours time, you're going to forget 60% of everything I've said in this podcast, unless you're taking notes. But with Dick, Dick would make things stick in the brain and, and resonate with you and, um, and, and make you feel unbelievable in each session. He'd say like, right, I need a volunteer. I need a centre midfield player that can hit a diagonal for both feet, that can receive the ball under extreme pressure. <laughs> Harry, up you come. Now, now I feel like, now I feel like Busquets. <laughs> all, all because of how he's, you know, how he set me up. And yeah, an absolutely, you know, brilliant, brilliant person, gentleman. And, and a legend of the game. And I, and I use that with, with the utmost of respect with using the word legend. So I think it's thrown around a lot, but he thoroughly deserves it. That's uh, quite fitting history. And of course, we're talking about a legend. It was in my life for 35 years. So what you're referring to now, Ari, I'm, I'm going, I'm laughing with you not laughing at you because I've I've experienced all of this. But I recall in 1985, going from here, it was the full badge and it's now the air license, of course, but it was it, that was the equivalent or is the equivalent now. And uh, I passed in 1985. I failed in 1984, the full badge, in, uh, and then in 85, I then went back and I'll never forget it, what they do with these people, especially they create memories. And what Dick did, he forged memories because of his delivery style. But he also was extremely humble. And what he'd done, he, he actually wrote me an unwritten letter. And it was, it was congratulating me on passing the full badge, passing the air license. And I just think that's special. Yeah, they just go that little extra mile. They, they really make you feel good about yourself. And equally, what they have, they, they've got this innate quality of timing, of having I mean, a great intense, intense sense of timing, of when to use specific language and when to drop in and like you're on about there, you know, I need a bus sketch, which then gives you an association. And so I, I thoroughly understand what you're saying. I've got to share that before both to yourself and the listeners as well. I got a question real quick. Was it true? Were you a Busquets or did he just <laughs> make you feel that way? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, I played better. I played better for it. And that's, hey, that's the art of, that's the art of being a good coach is maximising your, your tools in front of you. So he was, he, he was, he was brilliant. He would, um, like I say, just, he would just have the room. He would have the room. One of my good friends that was on the course, just another real quick story, um, worked at Spurs at the time. And he just, he come off the pitch. He said, I can't, I can't join in anymore in any of Dick's sessions. And I said, why? He said, because he's just brilliant. I need to sit on the side and write all this down. What he's saying, I need to write it down. But listen, I, I honestly, I don't think we're going to see another one like it. I think he was absolutely magnificent. For you, Ari, you, we've obviously spoke about it initially. You worked at Chelsea as an academy coach. You were there from 2009 to 2014. You then went to Millwall from 2014 to 2018. And then from uh, West Ham from 2018. And then only recently you've, uh, 
you've become the head coach of a professional team in the US, Hartford Athletic, which we will come on to shortly. But that the culmination of experiences, including the, the futsal stuff, how have those experiences combined helped shape you into who you are today? I think the first thing to say is I'm a product of, of, of the people that I've worked for, um, the clubs I've worked for and the people that I've worked with. That's one thing that I want to get across in terms of at Chelsea, Neil Bath, Paul Waldron, Michael Beale, Bob Osborne, um, you know, prop, you know, proper proper developers. At Millwall, Scott Fitzgerald, Steve Salis, it was Anthony Gow. Um, it was Dave Livermore, it was Neil Harris, the gaffer at the time. And at West Ham, Terry Wesley, Liam Manning, Kevin King, um, you know, proper proper developers, you know, real experience. Um, lots of grey hairs in there as well, may I add, because I think, you know, <laughs> the grey hairs are important, especially when you've got, you know, someone like me coming through at 19 at Chelsea thinking I know everything. Um, but I think, how did they shape me? I've been really lucky with the three clubs, uh, David, because they were completely different. I think, let's start with Chelsea. The players drove everything at Chelsea. And I mean that in, in, a, in a positive way. It was a world-class environment. And I want to give you an example. So I think in my third season, I didn't have a designated age group. So I would do either the nines, the tens or the elevens. So my week would be a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday. So, I'm gonna, so on, a, on a Saturday, as an example, I, I can remember the session like it was yesterday. I had the elevens and in that group was... Uh, Callum hudson uh Jonathan Panzo, um, I think Rian Brewster was in that group. And we finished, we finished the session and it was, you know, it was a brilliant session. And I remember the feeling of, oh my God, like these boys are top. These boys are top, top, top. And the way Cobham works is you'd walk back towards the building and to walk back, you'd have to walk past the 15s the 14s pitch. So we would walk back and then you'd see Mick delivering with Declan Rice, Mason Mount, Dan Kemp, Trevor Chaloba. And Mason Mount's practicing finishing with Mickey. So we stand there and we watch. And you watch Mason Mount going top right corner, top right corner, top right. So Callum's standing there watching that going, wow, like, like inspired. And then they would finish and we would all walk together to the youth team pitch where Josh McEachern is just running the show or Loftus-Cheeks playing two years up and driving from his own 18-yard box to the opposite 18-yard box. What I'm trying to get across is the players, the players were so good and they were so hungry and their passion and desire to be better than one another was so elite that they just pushed each other to the next level. And it was a relentless passion to practice and a relentless passion to, to, to be better than one another. You, you, you see it now with, there's a, there's a number of boys, Jamal Musiala, who's now playing at Bayern Munich. Uh, Jamal was in, was in one of my groups and, you know, he's playing in arguably one of the, the best sides to, to play in Europe in the last sort of 10, 15 years. He's he starting most games and he come from that environment. And that really sort of resonated with me of how sparring partners work. So I'm a big advocate of, of having good sparring partners. I think if you look at top boxers, when they're, when they're training and preparing for a big fight, they need good sparring partners. People that are going to test them, people that are going to round them, people that are going to make, you know, make them have an identity within that duel, that fight. 
And what we had at Chelsea was we had top-level sparring partners for every player. So if you were a, a small technician that was playing two or three seconds ahead in your brain, you could play up against a big physical dominant player where you had to have the ability to outplay with your brain. If you were you know, a quick wide player, you had an unbelievable 1v1 defender to go up against. And these boys would naturally do that. You wouldn't have to tell them. You wouldn't have to say to, to player A, right, go, and, go and try and beat him because he's the hardest player to beat on the pitch. They would go and do it. And it was a it was a, a world class environment set by the players. And at Chelsea, I have to be honest, the players taught me more than anybody else on, on, on those dynamics. I think moving on to Millwall, culture. The culture at Millwall was incredible because we didn't have anything. We didn't have anything. So head of recruitment would bring me in a player and go, H, look, I, I know, I know. Before you say anything, I know. I know he's not the finished article, but I can see something now. And I'd say, yes, yeah, so, so do I. And you'd have to put the hours in. So it wasn't like you was getting the product you was getting at Chelsea. You was getting a different product. But the culture of the players, so grateful to be there. An unbelievable work ethic. Um, you know, extremely grateful for everything you was doing for them. Extremely grateful for your time. And we got a lot of players into the first team at Millwall. And we got a lot of players out of the academy you know, for, to, to big clubs, especially in the North, two or three boys going to Manchester City for big money. And, you know, th those players, those players really, really embraced what Millwall was all about. And then West Ham, for me, best group of staff I've worked with. Um, and, and, and I say that with, with, with complete respect. But Terry Westley was a, he was the academy manager when I, when I took the job. I was actually driving down to Southampton to take a job when I got a phone call from West Ham and I, I went into West Ham on the way and I sat in the room with Terry for half an hour and I couldn't leave, could not leave. And I wanted to work for him. But Terry, Terry, Terry Wesley is a serial developer, serial developer, individual development plans, hours on the grass, knew how to produce a football player, knew how to give someone a career. And that, that phrase there, when I say give someone a career is really important really important because as we know it's so difficult to, to break through and to get there but Terry Terry had a brilliant ability of being able to spot what your unique strength is as a player and how we are going to get you how we're going to round the other bits but you keep that you keep that weapon you keep that super strength and how, how we sort of push you to the next level and that was via like I say individual development plans he had a brilliant mentor system and the mentor system was something I was really impressed with. Um, and the other thing at West Ham is they didn't care how big or small you was, they'd play you up. You, had, you see under-14s that were four-foot-one playing in the 16s and running the show. And he, he didn't care about anything like that, shape, size. It was how good are you with a ball? And, you know, really pushed them. So I think the three clubs I've worked at have given me three completely different perspectives and, and really helped really helped shape me to what I am. There's obviously a lot of experiences there, H. You've taken with you a plethora of knowledge, experiences from those clubs, from the people that you've worked with. And, and now you're applying your, those experiences, you trade over in the US, where, where we previously mentioned, you're now head coach of Hartford Athletic. It's a team playing in the USL Championship. 
just give us a brief on what the standard is comparable to over here. Yeah, I'll, do you know what? I've been asked that a lot, Keith. Um, it's a mix of it's a mix of conference national league two, under twenty three football, um, little a little sprinkling of some South American flavour in there as well. Um, it's it's a real it's a real interesting mix. It's a really young club. Hartford's a really young club, three years old. Um, the owner's really ambitious. Um, you know, really passionate about about the club and the growth of the club. And we've, you know, this season is the start of the main project. I think the first two years was very much employer manager, let the manager manage the club how he sees fit. I think this year, the interview process was was a case of present us your philosophy, um, and the and the club and the club's advisors really like the philosophy. Um, present us how you're going to develop us players, how we're going to potentially develop players to sell how we're going to develop a style and the game style's got to match that to, to enhance the strengths of the key individuals. Um, and it's been, listen, it's been a, a, a whirlwind experience in the, in the first season, you know, coming in as the youngest manager in the league at 31. And I, I didn't think, I didn't think I would be a manager at 31, but I, I had to make sure I was ready. And that's what I've always tried to do. I've always tried to make sure I'm ready, but it's, um, it's a decent standard. It's a great, it's a really, really good level. Um, and this might help paint a picture to the answer, Keith. It's a really good level for a first or second loan. For a, for a Premier League club, if you're looking at a loan, it's a really good level for that because you get a little bit of everything here. You get a bit of bite, you get some direct football uh, and you get a nice mix of teams that can play as well. So you're not just heading everything and kicking everything. You're not just reading and intercepting. You're doing a little bit of everything. So... If I'm looking at a young 19, 20-year-old centre-back that wanted to come over to this league and how it would shape and develop their career, I think it would be perfect for them. What's the environment like? Obviously, in your where, where you are at Hartford, what similarities, differences to what you've experienced previously? I think I think it's I think it's different in terms of so the first thing that I noticed when I come here was was the, the culture and the, you know, without generalizing too much, but the culture, the American culture, they are, in terms of their communication skills, they are absolutely outstanding. So you can get a group of, get, get a group of lads together and you can throw a question in and no one's holding back. Everyone's trying to, everyone's trying to, you know, put their thoughts forward in a really respectful way and trying to add value to a conversation. Um, so socially they're, they're, they're brilliant. I think, what, what was really funny is the first two weeks, no one could understand anything I was saying. I had to, I had to kind of try and round my accent a little bit. Um, and that was something that Dick, Dick Bates said to me once and the, the whole room laughed. He said, Harry, you're, you could be world-class. He said, but your accent's terrible. And that was something, that, was something that stuck with me for years. That was brilliant. Um, I, think the, I think the culture that we've tried to create that we've tried to create here, David, is, is one, of, one of a family, but where people feel safe to be brave. And that's a really complex thing to try and create because normally if you, if you, if you use the word bravery, you use the word bravery in an, in an unsafe environment because there's a risk to it. But we want people to feel safe in order to do that. No one's going to judge them. And I need to empower the players. And there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a few different things that we've done here to try and create that, but... You know, it's it's been it's been a brilliant experience so far trying to create that culture. And when you're recruiting players, 
and I've been involved in recruiting players, you've got to get a balance. You can't get you can't get everyone that's too nice. You can't have that because then, you know, when you need someone to put their foot in or you need someone to say something, you're not going to get that. You can't have everybody that's, you know, that, that's the other way because it, it just won't work. So you, you've got to get a good blend. We're a club that recruits very young. So the average age outside of the skipper, who's the same age as me, but everybody else is below the age of 24 because we want to develop players and, and try and help them progress their careers. So with that comes, you know, you get a few Mavericks, you get a few wild cards, which is, you know, right up my street. But then also you get a few, get a few players that are a little bit lost that are still searching for their identity. So that goes back to my academy days where you're working with 15, 16, 17-year-olds saying, like, come on, what are you good at? What are you good at? If me and you get in a lift tomorrow, an elevator, and you're going to the first floor, you've got 10 seconds to tell me what you're about. And I think that's something that we've really tried to shape as well here. Really, uh, really interesting response. There's certainly learnings taking place, and your experiences from past working with the working with so many Terry Wesley, particularly who I, who I know, uh, make of course, and one or two other names that you've thrown out there. But when you reflect on what you've been doing, what are you learning most? I think, there's, I think there's two main things. Um, and before I answer the question, I think something you said to me is really important coming away from England. Um, and I look at, my, I look at my, my heroes, if you like, in the game. Um, my first memory is Euro 96. And my, my favourite player was Gaza. And I looked, look at Gaza's career and he went and played abroad. And then I look at the manager, I look at Venables. I love Venables. I love Venables' career. And then I look at, you know, Bobby Robson. I love Bobby Robson when he was Newcastle manager. And when I delve into his career, you know, managed Barcelona. And I look at Pep and I look at Jose and they can speak different languages and they've gone and managed abroad. So for me, for me, you know, to, to go and to come and do something like this is a real big achievement for me. In terms of what I've learned, the first thing, and I think this is a really interesting topic that we can dig into, is how I recover after a loss. And I think when, you, when you're the manager of a team, unless you're working with a top, top side where you'll lose one, two, three, four, maybe six, seven games a season, when you're managing most other teams, you're going to lose between 10 and 15 games. You're going to lose between 10 and 15 games. And it's how quickly you can recover after a defeat and what, what quick fixes you've got, what slow fixes you've got, what go-tos you've got. Because ultimately, you know, you've got to go in again and you've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to have that smile on your face. You've got to motivate the players. You've got to have that, you know, we've spoke about him a lot on this podcast. You've got to have the dick bait effect. You've got to have that effect of coming in, making them feel empowered again and saying to the boys, hey, listen, let's not let a 1-0 loss define last week. Let's not let that 1-0 loss define those three finishing practices that we did with the forwards where they started to slide in the bottom corner. They wasn't just lashing at things. Let's not define, let's not let that, let that one nil define the great work that we did as staff, the great, you know, the great work that the players did together. So I think that would be the first thing on, you know, how to recover properly after a defeat. Um, and then the second thing is, I'm a real new school coach, but I've got really old school values. So for me, honesty, respect, integrity, hard work, they are the, you know, they are the real non-negotiables. 
But what I want to do is I want to be able to be a coach that can, you know, that can think in the future and play in the future. And I've looked at, you know, how I can use technology and how I can use social media as a positive. So how can I influence my players via social media? Rather than just going, no, I'm not going on social media. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to read comments. I've tried to go the other way. So just an example, um, our goalkeeper, I think, is the best goalkeeper in the league. And he's been fantastic this year. And last week, you know, after a game, an away game, he wants to come in on his day off. So I've put on one of my social media accounts a video of him warming up. And I've just put underneath... This is why he is at the level he is, because, you know, he's willing to go the extra yard. The next day, every single one of my boys was in early doing extras. So what I've, what I've sort of looked at there is there's more than one way to communicate with the modern player. You can sit them down, you can talk to them, you can show them, you can tell them, you can include them. But they're on their phones a lot now, whether we like it or not, they're on their phones a lot. And that was, you know, that was one thing that I've, I've really looked at. The other thing is when I do media, the players watch it. They watch it. So I need to be consistent. I need to protect them. I need to protect them. And if I need to send a message, I need to be really calculated about how I do that. So I've tried to use the media to, to, to help, you know, put messages across to, to my players. And then the last thing that, that we do a lot here is match day minus one, I'll step right away. And I'll go in the stands and I'll have my AirPods in and my two assistant coaches will have their AirPods in and we're on a call like this. And when we're doing pattern work or shape work, I'll just speak to them about what I've seen. So I'm still in control and I'm still looking at it and I've still got a say, but I'm away from it and I'm looking at it from a bird's eye view. And we have a screen on the side of the pitch where we can instantly replay to the players so they can go over and have a look at that. And the beauty of using the AirPods as well is I can ask one of my assistants to take their AirPods out and just give them to a player so I can put some information across to them as well and go, hey, listen, if I want you in that pocket there, maybe roll in a tiny bit earlier or maybe have one run for the defender and one run for yourself. Um, so I think the use of technology, to sum that up, has been a big thing and also recovering from defeats has been something that I've had to learn because being honest with you, fellas, when you're in academy football, you know, winning and losing is not the, you know, you, 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 you know, it's not the culture. It's not the be all and end all. But when you come into three points, sometimes you can get lost in that initially. And I've certainly been guilty of that because I'm a young manager and I'm, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to prove. And what I need to do is I need to come away from the word prove and I need to put an I am on the front of it and improve. I need to just keep improving because if I improve, we will prove on a Saturday. And if the players improve, we'll prove on a Saturday. Interesting. And you, you touched on quite a few things there that we've spoke about previously around third-party communication, using somebody else to be the conduit for a message. And one of them, and it's something I've... I guess not thought of, or it's not something I've used is actually using social media as the third party. So I could use you to speak to a player on my behalf, but then equally you've then used the platform that they use to get a message across too. I find it quite interesting. Cause like you said, 
players are they are where they are now they've we know that they've got the phones we know that they have access to social media they're playing in a different playground than they'd have been playing in 20 30 years ago and i think the ability to adjust and adapt as they grow and adjust and adapt is so important and even for you in the short period that you've been a head coach it's obvious that you are in that boat of of learning quickly unlearning stuff relearning adjusting adapting to get the most out of the people that you're working with now we've talked about what you've learned what have been the challenges for you in the environment and also the challenges of working abroad i think i think one of the main the main challenges is and you know an obvious one is is family so not not being not having the family around um, is difficult and we spoke right at the very beginning about what does gold dust mean to me my family gold dust to me so you know being able to come home and switch off and just speak to the wife and you know we have a saying in England don't we put the ball away put the ball away for five minutes um, being able to put the ball away and go for a walk with 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 parents or siblings or you know, or the misses and speak, just how, how was your day? And just speaking about other things. That's been a challenge. Um, I think dealing with, dealing with new things, owners, advisors, expectation. I think, I think they, they've been, they've been brilliant challenges. I think I've, I've actually discovered how resilient I can be. I thought I was really resilient before taking this job, but I'm more resilient than I thought I was because you're dealing with media. You're dealing with media that, you know, when you're winning, they're all over you. When you're losing, they're all over you. And you, you know, you've got, you've got to make sure that you you manage those things accordingly. Um, and players, players as well. I think one of the challenges is, and this is going to sound really simplistic, one of the hardest things to do, chaps, is pick the team. It's one of the hardest things to do, because I'm telling you now, on a Monday, my team is completely different to what it is on a Tuesday. And by Wednesday, it's changed again because every day the boys are coming in and they're, you know, they're trying to prove a point. Someone's, take, someone's taking their foot off the gas a little bit because they think that they're in and they're saving themselves. Um, and so, you know, one of, the, one of my assistants might come over and go, I'll tell you what, I really like him. He's, he's doing really well. And then you start listening to the voices. Then you've got to leave players out. How do you do that? What I try and do is be incredibly respectful to my players and, and tell them, you know, I don't like to announce announce the 18 man and not speak to people. I think that's really important that you, you explain to people why. It's another, another phrase which I, I love to use, teach them the why. And that's teach them the why with everything. So, you know, explain to them you know, why you're not involved. Where are you? What have you not been doing? Because the worst thing in the world as a footballer or as a professional in any, any facet is not knowing why your, your manager, your line manager or whatever, not knowing why they haven't chosen you for a particular role. Now, if, if I can explain where, where they are and where I need them to be, um, and those conversations are awkward. They're awkward, but that's my job. That's my job. And they'll thank me for it. They'll thank me for dropping them. And they'll thank me for picking them again. You know, I've got, I've got, a, young, got a young lad in the group, 17 years of age, gave him his professional debut, then started in the very next game, told, his, told him to tell his family to come along. So tell your family because I'm going to start you. And, and, the, and the boy struggled in the game, but that's football. So now I've got to pick him up. And 
you know that they've they've been they've been tough experiences, David, but they've been brilliant ones. They've been brilliant ones, and I think you know me. I've been tr- I've I've really tried to stay true to myself um, and stay true to my values for, throughout all of this, and I, and I hope my players would stay the same thing, even you know even throughout challenging times. Well, I know we had a conversation a few weeks back about some challenges, coping mechanisms, how you deal with pressure, how you deal with situations that just smack you in the face out of nowhere. And there was one that you mentioned to me that stuck out about the the first game of your managerial career. Uh, Would you be all right sharing that one? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, so. We, you know, we've we've got an away game. So you know, in the US, away games are, you know, they're big things. And I, I spoke to you guys just before we, you know, we started recording this about how much emphasis is put on road games. And now you're not expected to win road games here. We call them road games um, because of the travel. And to put it into perspective, we will travel. Um, slightly more than Liverpool will in the Champions League this year in terms of distance and over, you know, over a longer period of time. So, we, you know, we're travelling a hell of a lot, a hell of a long way because the country's so big. First away game, we've had a great pre-season, um, brilliant pre-season. Everyone's fit. Everyone's ready to go. We get on the bus. I've picked me 18, man. We get on the bus and I'm, I'm told halfway there that, my centre-half and my right-back have not been registered in time. But they're on the bus and we've picked them. <laughs> so now, now I've got the complex situation of, right, okay, first of all, what do I say? And then how do I say it? Because that's really important, really important. So pulled the two lads together and explained that it was, a, it was, um, it was an admin error on the league's part and said to them that I needed them, really needed them to be there for the rest of the group. And they were absolutely brilliant, both of them. Don't worry, Gaffer, it's not a problem. We'll, we'll, we'll be ready for the next game and we're, we're going to support the boys. So about 45 minutes later, I get a phone call to let me know that my centre-forward has not been registered for the game. Okay, interesting. So now... I've got to break the news to, to the centre-forward. And the centre-forward, you know, he's, he's, he's really into it. He's had a good pre-season and, you know, he's, he's ready to go. And I've had to take him for a walk around the hotel and put my arm around him and, and let him know that he hasn't been registered in time. And then I've spoke to our team admin and I've just said, look, listen, I, I understand. I understand that, you know, maybe there's been some mistakes made, but I need you to be world-class now for the next two days for me. Um, because I, I look, again, I look at it philosophically at someone at someone's kid. So I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lose my rag. I'm gonna just manage what I can and control the controllables. So right now, I've got to pick the team. So now, you know, we're putting the pre-match together. I like to have lots of chats. So you know, my assistant is John Stead, and he'll, he'll tell you. Steady will tell you. H loves a chat. I'll pull players everywhere. You know, do you want to have? Should we have a coffee? Should we have a chat? So you know, I'm having my chats and. Feeling really positive about the game because I feel like you know we've handled it as a club magnificently well. We've lost three players from you know from our roster, and we've handled it really well. So I don't, I never travel with the team to an away game. I always wait at the hotel for another hour. 
and put my put my music on. So I, I'm in, I'm in the taxi on the way to the game. Get to the game, watch a little bit of the warm up, and uh, my assistant comes over to me and says, "Gaffer, you're not going to believe this, but the wide player's not been registered either." <laughs> so, so, and this is 15 minutes before kickoff, just as the team sheets are about to go in. So I've had to pull the boy off the pitch. And I've had to just give him a cuddle. And again, he said to me, boss, it's not your fault. I trust you. You've been brilliant for me. Don't worry about it. And um, so we now go into the game, four players light, um, with uh, three subs, three or four subs it was. Can't remember now. Three subs. And we win the game 3-2. We win the game 3-2. The boys are magnificent. I almost put the, the, the substitute goalkeeper on up front at one point because we'd use all of our subs and our other forward goes down with about 10 minutes to go. And yeah, that, you know, that's the story there. And that was, that was my introduction. And that was my introduction to, right, okay, this is management. I've got to be mentally agile and I've got to really control my emotions. Because I'll be honest, people that know me really well, I was a really emotional person probably 10 years ago. You know, I'd let things, I'd, I'd let things simmer and I'd, I'd I'd go bang. And I've been, you know, I've, I've really developed in that part, part of my professional game. And, you know, being able to manage that, I was really proud of all of the staff, really, on how we, we kept it away from the rest of the group and we protected them and we managed to get the three points in, in our first opening game against uh, New York Red Bulls. You're definitely dealing with some interesting experiences, Harry, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> dealing, uh, you're right on the red zone. Testing the blood pressure and the heartbeat, uh, heart rate, and then dealing and managing people or managing other people's expectations, uh, which is great to hear, by the way, because it, it provides just a, another way in how people would deal with this. So there's a probably blowing the top, and for sure it's lovely to hear how you've been dealing with those situations. So, listen, just changing tact slightly. In a coaching context for, for you, what does a healthy learning environment for your players look like? Players are requiring a little bit of love, a little bit of rescue. Yeah, I think I think what I should do is just paint the picture of so so we we train at our stadium. So what I want to try and do for, for you, you guys and the listeners is paint the picture of what it looks like and feels like for the player when they walk through the tunnel onto the pitch. So we have two. We have two speakers um, playing music. There's music on for the warm up. We want it to. We want it to be free. Um, most of it's Brazilian samba music because that was my influence. Again, I go back to when I was 14, 15. Mickey used to put samba music on and give us a ball each, just to loosen us up and let us dribble and let us be free with the ball. Um, I don't know if you remember the old Nike advert in the airport, um, and that's the that's the kind of feel that I want with the players. There's freedom there. There's absolute freedom there. Um, and I always speak to the, to the players. I always say to them, just be, just be yourself. Just be yourself, please. Don't try and be anyone else. We have to supply support. We have to supply clean feedback, what I call clean feedback, which is honesty, which is, you know, clean feedback for me means, you know, Keith, you were absolutely outstanding on Saturday outstanding you covered every blade of grass 
you were relentless, you tackled, you ran. But Keith, that's your job. That's your job, Keith. So I expect that every week. That's clean feedback for me, you know, and, and, and clean feedback comes in other forms as well. You know, if you're not at it, if you're not at it, you need clean feedback. I think you've got to create an environment where people are, are encouraged to express themselves. I coach a lot on feeling. I mean, we've been talking for 40 odd minutes. We've not spoke about tactics once. I, I protect the players from the tactics. Um, I'm always on my board in my office. I'm, you know, playing around with formations, looking at different spaces that we can manipulate. When we're in possession, I want us to be out of position. When we're out of possession, I want us to be in position. You know, I want certain profile of players so that they can jump on and they can intercept. And I'll protect the players from all of that, all of it. For me, it's, okay, I'm going to empower you because there's one ball on the pitch. There's one ball and only one person can have it at once. So when you get it, I want you to almost feel like, I want you to almost feel like a singer performing at their concert. And they wouldn't hand the mic over to anyone else. They would perform. And the best players that I've worked with, you know, they almost get better when, when that time comes. They find another level. They find a level outside of, outside of, I suppose, the training and the practice mode. They find another level, another gear where they feel empowered to, to, to express. I don't really, I've come away from, I've come away from the language of taking risks. I've come away from that language because I used to say, I used to say to players all the time, risk the ball, go and risk the ball, go and risk it, go and take him on, go and risk it. I still want them to do that, but I don't like to use the word risk anymore. I want to take that. I want to take the danger out of it. I want to take the mystery out of risking the ball. I want you to just get at him, go and do what you're good at. And I think for players, taking the mystery out of things is really important. So for my centre-backs, I want you to get the ball off of the goalkeeper and I want the opposition to press you. This is what we want. We want you to be pressed because it's going to leave spaces on the second line and the third line and the fourth line. So what I need you to do is I need you to be really comfortable with someone running at you as quickly as they can, trying to steer you towards a certain side. And you choose. Are you going to reverse one into the six? Are you going to play the fullback? Are you going to melt it into the channel? Are you going to drop one just on the top of the chest, on the badge of the centre forward? Are you going to break a line into the 10? You choose, because you see it, I don't. But I want to empower them and I want to take the mystery out of it and the danger out of it, if that makes sense. And that's, that's the environment we want. And we also really encourage, you know, I'm, I'm a stickler for this and I've had many, many an argument with many a sports scientist and they are my best friends and my worst enemies. But I am a stickler for extras. Extras, the best players I've worked with, players that are now playing, you know, playing in the... In the, in, the, in the final of the Euros for England, that I have personally seen hit 60, 70 diagonal passes after a conditioning session, I am a stickler for extras. If you're a forward, you need to, be, you, you need to put a number on it. You need to put a number on it. How many shots are you having today? After training, put a goalkeeper in the goal. Right, you're having 30 shots, 15 off your left, 15 off your right. How many are you going to score? Come on, let's put a number on it. I'm a stickler for extras. And extras is on the pitch, and extras is off the pitch. Should we, come on, let's go and do your clips. Because the energy I bring, I mean, I must go through five or six coffees a day, but the energy I bring, I want to always be available to the players. Always want to be available. And I want my, my staff to be like that as well. So if someone's coming in and they want to go over their clips, they're, they're going to have 
they're going to have more than one option, right? If I go and see the gaffer, he's probably going to tell me something I don't want to hear at the moment because I'm not playing very well. So I might go and see Steady instead. They've always got they've always got a choice and an option, which is important. Um, and you know, extras is in the gym. Extras is relationship building. So I'm big on it as well in terms of. So our, our we we play a closed triangle. So we play two pivots and a ten. And and my number ten, he hasn't got to like my number nine, but he's got to go out for a coffee with him because he needs to know how he works. He needs to know how he works. He needs to know how he operates. He needs to know what he's thinking. So relationship management is is, is massive as well. Um, and the environment that we've created is is extremely complex but very simple. And it's very simple for the players because they know that they've got you know okay I can go and do my clips. I can go and do extras. If I want to do another finishing session and put it in the schedule, I know H will come and drive down and put the balls out and get the goalkeepers in. The, 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 the standards we drive in training uh, are big. Um, the expectations in terms of basics, brilliant basics, you know, I'm really big on that, but you have to make the player feel empowered. I heard Brendan Rogers said something years ago, every player that you meet, imagine that they've got written on their forehead, make me feel important. And that's something that, you know, we've really tried to do here. And it's, it's a process. We're not finished yet. We're not perfect, but we're trying. Somewhat on the same path with that, if we were to say in coaching, we must earn the right to influence, what does that mean to you? I think that's something that happens every day. I think it's a constant it's every day. I think you, you have an idea, then you need to sell the idea and then you need to inspire the execution. I believe that's the process. I believe top, top coaches are great salesmen. I believe Jose Mourinho could go and work for Ferrari tomorrow and be the top salesman. I really do. I think Pep Guardiola could go and work in John Lewis and, and rocket the sales. I think, I think he could do it. I really do. I think it's, for me, it's about if I've, if I've seen something in, in what we're doing, and I, I, again, I'll always go back to the individual because I'm very much person player team. I've seen something in an individual and I go, look, I really think that this week we're going to play you on the left rather than the right because I think, there's a, I think there's, there's a chance in this game for you. Come and have a look at this, show them some evidence, sell them the idea and then inspire the execution. So inspiring the execution through practice design, through language, through clean feedback, through environment. For me, every day you have to earn the right to influence because one idea, David, if I'm influencing, if I'm influencing you on something, it's really important that I'm not doing it on everything. I've got to get a feel. Um, whenever I give advice, I'm really careful about it. So... I try not to give advice unless I've got a good feeling for it. And I suppose that lends itself to influence as well. Um, I will ask questions and I will be a sounding board before I give advice on the game because I need to know what direction to, to influence in. So rather than me saying, right, oh, I think you need to do this. It might be, tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what you're thinking. What do you think? What do you think? With that, I get clarity of thought. I get their perception, their perspective, and then I'm able to, to, to help influence in, in the way that, that the team needs them. Um, but I, I do genuinely believe it's constant and it's every day as the subject will change, you know, all of the, all of the time. You're obviously a 
there's a wealth of knowledge in your lances and there's depth with them as well, which I chuckle to myself when you mention about Jose and Pep being the best salesman that they are. They, they could they could go and work in John Lewis or pretty equally just listening to yourself. You know, you're actually using language that's really so appealing. You go, yeah, simplicity is the genius. It's very simple. You're making it sound so simple. But yeah, that can be at times the complication. I've got a question which you might have two or three in actual fact, Harry, but what's the best coaching advice you've ever received and from whom? I think, I think probably from probably from, from Mickey Bill. Um, never look sideways to compare, only for inspiration. And as you can probably tell, I'm a deep thinker and I really thought about that. And I thought, right, what does that mean? What does he mean? And then what does that mean to me? What it means to me is if I'm looking, if I am looking sideways to compare, I'm in the wrong environment. I'm not being tested. I'm at a level where I'm, I'm, I'm here. I want to be in an environment where I'm aspiring to get to, 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 to the next level. So if I'm looking sideways for inspiration, it means I'm surrounding myself with elite people. So again, you know, we go back to, to some of the people that we spoke about earlier. So I'd say when I come up, come up a few times to Liverpool when, when Mickey was there and the academy, academy manager, academy director, Alex Inglethorpe is someone that I looked at straight away and he inspired me. Developer, real keen eye for player development, fantastic speaker, holds himself really well. And I'm, I'm not looking to compare to him because I'm not at that level yet. I'm looking for inspiration. So you need to surround yourself with people like Alex Inglethorpe, like Terry Wesley, like Michael Bill, like Dick Bate. Um, and, and I would say that's been, that's probably been the best advice because what that's then lent, lent itself to as well, Keith, for me, it's, it's helped me try to identify mentors. And I think mentors are extremely important. People that you can use as sounding boards, people that will give you clean feedback. Um, and if I'm surrounding myself with people that are, you know, are able to do that for me and really make me cause reflection, then again, we're going back to what he said, never look sideways to compare, only look for inspiration. Then I'm, I'm trying to drive the standard of my circles of people that I'm surrounding myself with. And that, that for me is probably the one that really stands out the most. Harry, final question for you. What, is your greatest curiosity about coaching? What a question to finish up. I think, I think the unknown. I think the way that the, the way that the game's changing. Um, my curiosity is: is are we? Am I going to be able to adapt? Going to be able to develop like Sir Alex Ferguson? So if you look at Sir Alex Ferguson, what was he able to do? He was able to, for me, he was able to think in the future. He was able to play in the future. He was able to adapt. He was able to look at, look at the game now and predict with his style, his recruitment, 
And when I say recruitment, I don't just mean recruitment of players because I want you to think really carefully about Sir Alex and his staff because he'd have a different assistant every three or four seasons. He'd have a McLaren, then he'd have a Carlos Quiros, then he'd have a Rennie Muhlenstein. And he was able to constantly move his game forward. My biggest curiosity is, am I going to be able to move forwards and not stand still? Because if I think about if I think about the best team I've ever seen play football, David, it's, 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 I think it's the one that most people would say is that Barcelona team, right? That Barcelona team, they were magnificent. The one thing that you would throw at them was in transition, if they didn't win the ball back quickly, you could hurt them athletically. And I remember sitting down with, with my cohort, my A-licence cohort and Ben Bartlett, um, said, what, what would a game look like in 10 years? What, what will the game look like in 10 years? What will the players look like? What will the managers look like? And I think we are seeing that Barcelona team recreated, I think, with slightly better athletes. I think with players that can play in that transitional moment better. And I think the best coaches have stood the test of time. I think the best coaches have been able to move and 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 keep that curiosity and keep that burning. I think curiosity is a fire inside of you, isn't it? It's a fire that burns inside. If that goes out and that curiosity goes, I think you stop learning. I think you stop learning. So my biggest curiosity of, of, of the game and of coaching is the unknown, the things I don't know um, and, and the things that I'm, you know, readily willing to listen to and, and learn because I think that is... That's the difference between standing still and moving forwards. Harry, I've really enjoyed this. I, I'm sure I'm going to thank you on behalf of myself and David and all the listeners here. But this has been such young years. Let's just assume you go through to, let's say, 80, maybe 90 years of age. You've you got the best part of 50 years left. So you, you just turned 30, you're just over 30, 31. You're quite philosophical about how you go about doing your job and some of the comprehensive responses through the answers that we pose and you've come out with so much depth. It's really an exciting future for everyone that's listening. Then I would without shadow of doubt, be wanting to follow someone like you who, who has something uniquely special. So I thank you on behalf of David, uh, myself. This has been extremely, uh, really, really enjoying and very rewarding. So thank you. No, thank you. Thank you both for having me on. It's, um, it's, a, it's a pleasure and it's, it's a massive privilege to be on the show. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at the Gold Dust Coach. Dot com. Thank you, everybody.